welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. going to be uh, in a passage this week out of the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we're going to break from our Colossians series for just a few weeks. We came to a chapter break, so I thought it would be a natural place to, to uh, take a bit of a break for a few weeks in light of Christmas, but before we come to a Christmas series that starts next week, a four-part series called Do You See What I See? The, the True Identity of Christ as He Came. Uh, we're going to do a standalone message like we often do on Communion Sundays. Communion is, is essential for us as one of God's churches, and uh, it's a message that I hope will help focus you on the gospel that communion portrays, and uh, we'll be involved in that in a special passage out of Luke. So let me read from the Word, then you'll be able to be seated, and I'll kind of tell you a little bit more about why I've been led to this passage It is a passage in Luke chapter 23 during the crucifixion hours of our Lord. It's verses 39 to 43 that describe one of the most magnificent moments of gospel conversation in Scripture. The thief on the cross and the moment that he finds eternal life. So let us hear the word of God this morning. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is God's magnificent word. May its message break upon our hearts with fresh power. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Appreciate that so much. Well, it is a stirring uh, moment in the Gospels, isn't it? And I I chose it. I've visited this passage with you some years ago, but it certainly bears retelling and rehearing because uh, communion is designed, according to the words of the Lord Jesus, as an experience and a place in which we remember him. And I think it it represents the image of the gospel itself. I've told you many times past that communion is really, if you want a shorthand way of describing it, it's the gospel in two hands. A broken body indicating that there really was a depth of suffering that a real human went through. He really did that for you. And the blood of sacrifice poured out to show that a price was really paid and it was paid in full. So 
communion is the gospel in two hands, and uh, we, we celebrate it as one of God's churches because of the commands of Scripture. Now, uh, there have been many changes to our services here in this room over the challenges of the last year or two. And that affected how we took communion together. Today, as you can see by the the communion tables in our worship center, we're returning to the manner in which we have served and received communion here at Valley Forth Church for years. We're going to be returning to the traditional bread and cup, which you'll see. And they're placed on tables here in the worship center. Although the tear-off versions are still available at each table, for those that desire that and would be more comfortable with that, make no mistake. And when we come to communion a little later in the service, I'm going to be asking you as a pastor to stand up and come from wherever you are, and the congregation together will come to these tables. You'll come on your own, or maybe as a couple, or as a family, and as we worship and sing, you'll be able to begin a a, a moment of meditation as you come, and you'll take the elements that are there placed for you and uh, move back to where you're seated and take those elements and hold them, the gospel, in both hands and take a time as we sing to meditate on who Jesus is and what he's done and what you might need to bring before him in confession. And then finally, you'll receive them along with me together. And so on this day of returning to the experience of communion as we've had it for years, I thought it would be good to bring a message to remind us of the gospel that communion represents. As I said, it's, it's an image of the gospel in two hands. Today, I want to go into a passage that is an image of the gospel in one conversation. We've spoken a lot here in recent years about seeking out gospel conversations, moments of time in the flow of life with someone who doesn't know the Lord but knows you, and which we are able to generate a conversation point or maybe an entire conversation around the gospel. Through gospel conversations, gospel conversions come. You probably had one if you now know the Lord. And so I wanted to go into what you could call the ultimate gospel conversation. It's one of scripture's most magnificent moments between the thief on the cross and Jesus Christ. One man who went from determined defiance to desperate honesty with God. It's a gospel conversation that shows the beauty of the gospel, and I thought it would be a great backdrop to remind us again from Scripture about the gospel that communion makes meaningful. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to walk very briefly through this ultimate gospel conversation and remember what it reveals about the true gospel. In a conversation that might have only taken moments, in the darkest hour of of this thief's life, we find the four key understandings of the true gospel. That's what I'll walk through with you. So let me set the stage as we revisit the gospel through this amazing conversation. We, of course, know it comes in the midst of the hours of Christ's agony on the cross. It comes after the initial nailing and physical agony had begun and the cross had been raised, the crossbar, and dropped down onto the center post so that 
Christ's shoulders were dislocated and he began the agonizing hours-long process of pushing himself up on the nails and pulling himself up from the nails to catch every breath and then sinking in exhaustion down again and then pushing himself up to catch his next breath. Crucifixion designed to be a long, long experience of self-suffocation, a terrible, terrible journey he had entered. The nailing had been done, and according to Luke, the The soldiers had settled down at the foot of the cross and were gambling over the garments of Christ as the the prophecies had predicted. The physical agonies had begun to rise in Christ's physical experience. He had already uttered the great words, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In fact, he had stated it repeatedly, the, the original text says, multiple times rising on that cross in breath. And he asked the Father to forgive these around him that were bringing death to him. He had commended Mary, his mother, to the care of John, the apostle at the foot of the cross some moments before. Now a new stage arises, not only is physical pain rising in his body, but now emotional and relational pain rises because now people take their cue, those that surround the cross, and they begin to mock him. Mocking comes from the chief priests and the Pharisees who had condemned him. Mocking comes from the crowds who had gathered around to watch his death. Mocking came from the people walking on the roadside and stopping to see the three crosses and noting the venom that was directed at the one in the middle. The mocking had risen to a high level. And in the early hours and in the early moments, both of the thieves mocked Christ, Matthew tells us. Mocking was the, the level of agony that the prophet had also predicted in Psalm 22. Those that gather around me mock me, the psalmist said, predicting the experience of the Messiah. They wag their tongues. They open their mouths. They tell me if I am the Son of God to deliver myself. It's an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. So sustained mocking. And after this, the suffering moves into this next segment. Now I point out what we saw there if we were viewing Golgotha that day. There were three crosses. That's significant. Christ could have been crucified on his own and he was indeed a polarized figure and he was a unique individual. You would think that he might have been given a special place of focused crucifixion agony. But the Roman authorities and perhaps at the encouragement of the Jews chose to crucify him among two other criminals. They wanted to make an example of him and show the world that he was nothing more and nothing less than a common criminal, a common thief. And so there were three crosses. Little did they know that they were fulfilling what another prophet had said centuries before, that Jesus the Messiah would be numbered among the transgressors. All of this in fulfillment of prophecy. Now, they chose to place Christ at the center of two unusual people. The Bible calls them thieves, but we know that they must have been a different kind of thief. You were not crucified for grabbing a a loaf of bread in the market and running and getting caught. 
Crucifixion was for the highest level of criminal. These were violent thieves. They must have been life takers in their lives of crime. And they must have committed a high level of theft and taken a life in the process. They were given capital punishment. So they were violent criminals. They were the lowest of the criminal life. And yet Jesus is crucified with them and they place him in the center so that they're making a statement to the world and especially to the Jews that had wanted him so killed that he was the lowest of all the lowest criminals. He was the most despised man on the hill that day. The lowest of the low numbered among the transgressors. And so they all gathered and mocked the man in the middle. He was so uh, focused on as the lowest human being on that hill that even the two thieves condemned for crimes of their own were mocking him. Imagine that. God's son experiencing the depth of human rejection so profound that the lowest of human beings found him still lower than they were. Can you imagine that? All in fulfillment of the rejection that he would have to experience. And so the mocking had risen. You can see it in Luke 23, verses 32, up to the beginning of our text. The mocking had risen, and now perhaps some more time had flowed. And then something changes. The mocking had subsided. Perhaps people had gotten hoarse or run out of interest in mocking Christ. There was a silent time. And then this conversation emerges. One person experiences a change. The mocking still rose and fell at times, but one person had stopped mocking one of the thieves. And he began to see and reach for the gospel that saves. So let's look into this conversation now that emerges between the thief and the Christ. In it, you can see four dimensions of the true gospel. In it, you can see the four understandings any person who was alienated from God must have in order to come to Christ. See, there are many different gospels that are described today, aren't they? There are many different ways in which people are told they can come to Christ or have come to Christ. But, oh, there are some identifying moments in this conversation that reveal to us that there is a fourfold understanding you've got to have to be with him in paradise. So let me preach the remainder of this passage along those four discoveries or those four statements of the gospel that you must understand to be saved. The first thing this one thief begins to understand is that there is a God. There is a God. We see this in verses 39 and 40. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So there was still some mocking going on. Perhaps the crowds had quieted down and the priests had lost their voices. But there was this one thief who continued to mock him as their agony grew together. And he said, if you're the son of God, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Not expecting anything to happen, but just throwing revulsion on Jesus Christ. So there's one thief on one side still mocking, but the other rebuked that thief. 
saying, do you not fear God? This is an astounding moment of departure into the beginnings of discovering the gospel. Do you not fear God? It's a, it's a question that bore its own answer. This man is saying, in my final death agonies, I know I'm not getting off this cross except through the portal of death. I'm in my last hours, and I am coming face to face with the fact that I face an eternity created by God. There is a God, and his reality is settling on my soul as never before in my life this thief was discovering And he was declaring that in this hour, I am beginning to experience a fear of God. Aren't you? And the implied answer is the other man was denying it. So the first element of the gospel that has to be understood that the thief began to move into is that there is a God. He was getting it. Now in the gospel and earlier in Luke chapter 12, he was getting into a reality that Jesus warned every person who faces death that they need to to deal with. And he was talking about the future persecution for those that followed him. He said this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so Jesus was saying, as you faith death, particularly if you are one of my followers, death is not the greatest thing to fear. Fear what happens and who you will encounter after the moment of your physical death. It's it's a clarity in scripture that we have if we understand who God is and who we are. And so every person, as they approach death, has that moment where they have to accept that reality and deal with it. Now, the the two thieves on either side of the cross really represent the whole world's response to the reality of God as death approaches. You think about it. Maybe you've known people who are in the final moments of death. You've been in their presence. I, because of what I've been called to do, have been in many of those moments people near and dear to me, people newly known to me many times. And everyone in that that moment who's given the understanding of what they're heading to faces the opportunity of how they'll deal with it. And these two thieves represent the two responses of everyone in the world to the call of the cross at the moment of death. You've got one thief on one side who's beginning to be stirred and wants to deal with the reality of God and where he's headed, the one who holds eternity in his hands. But then there's another who hardens his heart and keeps mocking the existence of God. Those are the two dimensions of every human being who will ever face death and contemplate God and the cross. One thief being stirred to what he really needs to fear, the other thief being hardened. And that's, of course, what the Bible tells us the great reality of being in sin means. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, the scripture says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. 
and no one seeks for God. And then in verse 18 of the same chapter, he, he finalizes his description of all men and women in sin. And he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And there you see the two responses of the world on either side of the cross. And that's the response I've seen many times in those that come to death and know they're coming. I've seen people on either side of that cross. And it's, well, it's just, it's, it's moving and sobering to see it. I've seen people like this thief who began to have his heart moved. I've had people call me to their bedside and ask me to help them embrace the gospel. What powerful moments those final times were. I know the power of what it is to have someone look into my eyes who's never known him and say, I need to know how to be right with God. Oh, what beauty in those moments. But then I've also seen people who either defiantly or nonchalantly continue to ignore the reality. Whether you read about well-known atheists in our time that make it very clear as they face death that they simply believe, like Stephen Hawking, the great astrophysicist who died a few years ago, that, that we are simply a collection of chemicals and physical, uh, physical interactions. Hawking was famous for saying, we're all computers. And when the electric current stops flowing through the computer that I am, there will be nothing left of me. There is no heaven and no afterlife. That's a fairy tale for people who cannot face reality. And so there are the famous God deniers in our society that may say that, and I've known others less famous who said the same thing. But how about those that, that aren't so defiant, but they're very complacent, and they continue to ignore that reality, perhaps as they have terminal illness and they're facing something that they know is soon going to take their life. It might be something as simple as that lady that you've met with and done some quilting with over the, the years of your life. She's in that little group that you get together with at you know, downtown or at a senior center or whatever, and she's facing death in an unbeatable cancer. And every time you've sought to bring a, a gospel conversation up for her, she silently looked at you for a moment as you've offered the, the, off, the, the chance to talk about peace with God. And then she goes back to saying, you know, I just, my, my greatest goal is to finish this quilt for my great-grandchild so she'll know what I was all about. That's quaint, but it's blind. Or the bucket lister who's got money and knows that he's facing death, but he's got plenty of time in his mind to spend what money he has left. And so he is a bucket lister. He's listed all kinds of things he wants to do in this last year before he can't move as freely and before pain starts to overtake him. And he thinks that parasailing is a better alternative to figuring out whether he can have peace with God. Make no mistake, the world stands on either side of the cross at the moment of death, and it makes its decision. What decision will you make? So there is a God. That's the question that penetrates hearts facing eternity. It penetrated this man's heart, and he began to stir. Second, he moved into the second understanding, and that was 
To understand the gospel, I admit, number one, that there is a God, but that I also stand condemned before him. Don't miss this in our text. He goes on to this other thief still mocking Jesus, and he says, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Stop there. The man now goes from an awareness of the eternity-keeping God to an understanding that he is condemned before that God. Condemned before him because of his own life, because of his own deeds. That's conviction in that moment. Conviction has to land on a soul before that person is saved. Jesus is not an answer to the inconveniences of my life. He is the one who is the only answer to the convictions of my soul. And that's what happens as conviction runs upon a breaking heart before the Lord. This man says, we're guilty in the eyes of all society, and we ought to be on these crosses. We're under the same sentence of condemnation together. We've killed, we've robbed, we've sinned to the highest degree. This is all just for us, verse 41. We're receiving the due reward of our deeds. He's basically saying, listen, I know we're guilty. These people knew we're guilty. The judges knew we were guilty when they sentenced us. If man knows we're this guilty, what will it be like to face a perfect God? Who knows even more about what we've done and why we did it? If man condemns us, won't God? Don't you understand that we stand condemned before him? This is conviction of sin, as I've said at numerous times in my ministry. That is the hole in the gospel today. Out of a desire not to offend or to move somebody forward in a decision process, or whatever it might be, or because we don't think we have the authority to convict someone of sin, we, we overlook or underplay that dimension of what a person needs to experience before they trust Christ. Repentance and conviction of sin, the whole in the gospel these days. We've got to bring the full story and the full pain to bear. And you're not the one convicting them, by the way. The word of the gospel is. As you make clear how perfect God is and how fallen we are, that will do its work. And it's really something that as you talk about who God is, becomes clear. I have to go back into the past sometimes when I study to find commentators and thinkers that think this way anymore. We, uh, we have a gospel in our age that's constantly being, well, version 2.0'd, adjusted for effect, articulated for a new culture, whatever. I'll tell you this, the depth of sin that I see this latest culture creating <laughs> is no different than the depth of sin any previous culture did. Oh, they need to hear the same message. Here's an older Bible commentator. Forgive some of the old language, but I thought I'd repeat him, somebody I had studied. On this passage, he wrote, it is not until our desperate condition is realized that we discover our need of a divine savior. 
We have to be abased before we can be exalted. You see, we have to come to God as beggars, empty-handed, before we can receive the gift of eternal life. We have to take the place of lost sinners before him if we would be saved. Yes, we have to acknowledge ourselves, as this man did, as thieves before we can have a place in the family of God. But you say, I'm no thief. I mean, I acknowledge I'm not all I ought to be, and I'm not perfect. And in fact, I might even go as far to admit that, yeah, on, a, on occasion I've sinned, but I don't think that this thief, this lowest of the low on that cross next to Jesus, represents me. Ah, oh, friend, your case is far worse than you suppose. You are a thief, and you're a thief of the worst type because you have robbed God. God created you. God has creator's rights over you. He created you for his glory. And by the way, living for his glory would have been your greatest fulfillment. But from the very beginning of your life, you have robbed God of his glory. He endowed you with the talents you have and the capacities you have to use and improve them. Have you lived them and used them for him or for yourself? No need to answer the question. God has blessed you with your health and your strength and your experiences and your preparations from life and all of the circumstances that were a blessing in your world. He has supplied your every need. And with what result? You've given nothing back to him and never regarded him. You've served another master, even Satan himself, though you did not know it. You've lived out all of your strength and wasted all of your time in the pleasures of self and of sin. You have robbed God, unsaved listener, in the sight of heaven. Your condition is as desperate and your heart is as wicked as that of this thief. See in him a picture of yourself. To fully understand the gospel, you not only have to be shaken with the realization that there is an eternity holding God, but secondly, you need to taste the fact that you do stand condemned before him. You've robbed him of his glory, you've disobeyed his perfect will, and you stand without hope. Indeed, you could say these words, indeed, justly, I will receive the due reward of my deeds. Now, into this depth of conviction, now there's room for a seeking of hope, isn't there? And that's where this conversation, this gospel conversation, leads this man into a third realization. Not only is there a God who holds eternity in his hands, not only will I face him condemned before all of his standards and with my life record before me, but I need a sin-defeating Savior. That's where the the dawning of his need and of who Christ is comes. He says, we indeed are going to receive the due reward of our deeds, verse 41. But look at this. But this man has done nothing wrong. What did he perceive in those hours of agony about the Jesus who was between the two? He saw that Jesus Christ was the perfect God-man. He saw that Jesus Christ was the sinless sacrifice. This man has done nothing wrong. And by the way, this thief on the cross joined a long list of people who admitted the same thing. Pilate stood before the crowd who said, crucify him, crucify him. And he said, why? For he has done nothing wrong. 
a pagan politician saw his blamelessness and shook in the presence of it. Judas, having done his deed before he took his life, wept in agony in a shadowed hall in Jerusalem. Oh, I have betrayed innocent blood. An innocent one. And here this thief, in the moment of clarity that that this collapsing of one's life brings, saw that this Jesus was suffering for no wrong. And therefore it must have crystallized in his mind that he must be suffering for someone else's. And I believe in a moment the Spirit of God brought to that man's mind, he's suffering for me. He's a sin-defeating Savior. And so in a moment, you see this man decide to move toward Christ. Don't miss it. This man has done nothing wrong. Then verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me. Remember me. He turns to Christ in a moment. Does it take a long and eloquent and theologically pre-qualified prayer to trust Christ in salvation? Some of you might have prayed one. (laughs) I didn't. In my midnight, I basically cried out to Jesus and I said, oh, look what I've done with the life you've given me. Oh, remember me and save me. And in this moment, the same thing happened to that man and he simply said, Jesus, remember me. If he spoke in the tongue of the Jewish culture, he might have said, Yeshua, which meant Jehovah saves. Oh, Yeshua, remember me. Or the Greek, Jesus, which means the same. The one who God sent to save, remember me. And that was all that it took, and he received everything that Jesus had for him in eternity. That's amazing. It just takes a look and a call. He knew there was a God. He knew he stood condemned before that God, and he knew he needed a sin-defeating Savior, and he was seeing one. I've mentioned as I went over this passage some time ago with you before that the, some of the original language sometimes just explodes with the, the pathos of the moment. And in the Greek language in which Luke recorded this encounter, as, as verse 42 says, the man said, Jesus, remember me when it says, and he said, there are two ways that you could have described that in the Greek language. The aorist, which was, he said it once in a moment of time, one time. Or the imperfect active indicative, which meant he said it and kept saying it over and over. It's the imperfect here. Which means that every time that thief pushed himself up on his own nails and drew his own breath, he said, Jesus, Yeshua, remember me. And then slid down on the cross again. Moments later, when he could not bear without another breath, he pushed himself up again. He took his breath and then said, Jesus, Yeshua, remember me, looking to Christ. This was a man who was stirred with the desire to find a sin-defeating Savior, and he did. And finally... He also knew that he needed a death-defeating Lord. 
You take a look at the final phrase. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What does that tell us? He knew in a flash of spirit-inspired insight that Jesus Christ was not dying and there was an end point to it. He was dying to rise. He would be coming out of death. He would be coming back from death. He was going to defeat death and he was going to come back and bring a righteous kingdom to this planet. And he's going to bring a lot of people with him who had trusted in the fact that he is a death-defeating Lord. When you come, Wow, a prophecy of what would happen. When you come, Lord, bring me with you. A death-defeating Lord. Now, Jesus beautifully answers in the final verse of our text, and he said to him, that's aorist. In other words, he said it, and he said it once. He pulled himself up on his cross in the midst of two men. One man perhaps still railing at him in his defiance of death and his denying of God, but another in the midst of conviction, knowing there's a God, knowing he's condemned, knowing that Jesus is the sin-defeating Savior and he's going to be a death-defeating Lord. And Christ turns to that seeking man and he pulls himself up on his cross. And in one moment he says, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise one time. The Greek text says, for truly I say to you, it's beautiful, it's the word amen. (laughs) Amen. That means it will be so. In that moment, salvation arrives and it's completed and that man's eternity is healed and settled. Wow. You know what this gospel conversation proves? It's a moment facing death, it's extremity, but it shows you that anyone can be saved. I mean, this sinner on the cross, this thief condemned to death, had probably committed racks of sin higher than the average person, but the Bible says where sin abounded, what abounded? Grace still more. Not only anyone, but any time. This man was facing death, And he allowed that moment to crystallize salvation. You know, um, this may sound strange, but there's a mercy for the lost in the fact that God has allowed death to be so terrifying. Because in those hours of realization like this man had, so many others have, and they have a chance to determine what they'll do with an eternity holding God. I spoke a little earlier about uh, Stephen Hawking as kind of a a non-believing, a famous atheist. But um, he died without turning. But others have uh, been just as influential as atheists, and they've Yet they've faced and they've suddenly been struck with conviction as they've died. Just two examples. Thomas Paine who was the leading atheistic writer in colonial America. His most famous work was The Age of Reason. Obviously, you can tell from the title that it was moving us away from a supernatural moralism defining God and into the ability of man's reason to rule himself and to explain all reality. He was a leading atheist thinker of the time, turned many away from their faith. As he was dying, here are the last 
words that were recorded of Thomas Paine. Stay with me for God's sake. I cannot bear to be left alone. Oh Lord, help me. Oh God, what have I done to suffer so much? What will become of me hereafter? I would give worlds if I had them that the age of reason had never been published. Oh Lord, help me. Christ, help me. No, don't leave. Stay with me. Send even a child to stay with me for I am on the edge of hell here alone. If ever the devil had an agent, I have been that one. Thomas Paine. Or Sir Thomas Scott across the pond, as they say, a, a chancellor of England who railed against the Christian history of England and taught many to defy the Christian faith. On his deathbed, here's what he was saying. Until this moment, I thought there was neither a God nor a hell. Now I know and feel that there are both, and I am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of the Almighty. Now, they were experiencing the same collapsing reality that the thieves on either side of Christ were experiencing. And here's the mercy that I think might be there. It's possible that both of those men, or one, might in that moment of a surpassing shock and realization, listen, they might have turned to Jesus Christ. See, that's the greatness of it. God allows the full report of who he is to settle on every life in some way, and he may give them the mercy of understanding through the shadow of death just what they have done and who they face, and they too can have a moment when they look to Jesus, whom they defied all their lives, and say, Jesus, remember me. This is the hope that we have of those that we may have known and loved who defied Christ with every breath. Oh, but if we bear the gospel to them in their last hour, we can pray that that gospel we bore so many times in the moment of their last struggle and their last realization, they may, in the quietness of their mind before God who holds their eternity, they may still have turned to Jesus. For all it takes is a look to Jesus and asking him to remember you. And Jesus said, when you do that, he said to this thief, you will be with me in paradise. Paradise was the place that all those who, who trusted in Messiah would go at death. Their spirits would go to a place called paradise. Jesus had talked about it in his teaching ministry. And he says, listen, in an hour or two you'll die and you'll join me in paradise. I'm going to go with all those who have awaited me. They're surrounded by an angelic honor guard and a perfect place of peace and joy. And when I rise and ascend into heaven some weeks from now, I'm going to empty out paradise, according to Ephesians and 1 Peter, and I'm going to take them all to the Father's house. <laughs> and you'll be with us simply because you said, Jesus, remember me. Well, must close. This ultimate gospel conversation shows us the gospel that saves. It's a gospel that tells us there is a God and that we stand condemned before him and that we need a sin-defeating Savior and a death-defeating Lord. And all we need to do is see our sin and seek our Savior in a look or a call. And we too will be with him forever. So how does this amplify communion as we prepare our hearts for it?
I think the answer is because when you look at the elements, you're seeing the same two things that the thief saw that day. He looked at that man in the middle and he realized that man's body was broken for a different reason, broken for that man's sins, for his own. And that blood was spilled for sins that Jesus didn't carry himself, but he took upon himself. And that's what communion is a reminder of, that that's what happened for us, and the fact that Jesus said, if you believe these things, you will be with me forever, is the same assurance that the thief left the earth with that we can have right now. So this is the beauty of this moment, and I ask that the gospel inform our celebration of it. Thank you.